You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series and syndicating for the A-List online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith and what follows is a conversation between myself and a fellow by the name of Sam Matthews who's the bassist in a Sydney band called The No Goods. The reason for the conversation is to promote The No Goods' brand new self-titled LP. So let's have a listen to what Sam has to say. Here we go. For our chat. How are you going? Good, mate. How are you? Mate, I'm plugging away. We finally got some typical hot weather from where I'm from, so uh, just dealing oh, cool. with that at the moment. But I can't complain, mate. It's oh, been, yeah. If it goes below about, I don't know, what I reckon, 18 degrees or so, it's still getting the shits, to be honest with you, because it usually means a job has <laughs> got to be bought out, which is a little bit too much thinking for me with my busy lifestyle, mate, to be frank. But uh, how's, how's things <laughs> been going for you otherwise? Yeah, not too bad. We've been keeping busy. Um, actually, the weather's just took it, taking a turn up here as well. Um, been pretty nice the last couple of days, and, and just turned rubbish today. Yeah, are you in? Are you in Perth or in Sydney? Ah, uh, in Sydney. Sydney. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's. Um, I, I guess we're only a thousand kilometres away from each other, but it's remarkable how different the weather can be, can't it? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Make this album. Good stuff. So this is a self-titled oh. affair, I think, isn't it, if I'm not mistaken, or has it got a title? That's right. Okay. No, it is self-titled. So I'll kick things off because I'll tell you what I'm hearing, okay? And I know you probably get this feedback a bit, so bear with me through the cliche for a moment because I did hear some other things too, but there's heavy lashings of Rolling Stones in there, which is a wonderful thing. Can never have too much of that. Mm. But there's also 50s doo-wop, Elvis Costello, oh. and one of my mm. favourites, The Vinyls. What are your thoughts? Oh, Love it. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, it sort of had that kind of vibe for us. Um, I mean, we had, like, our love of, like, the Angels and that kind of classic yeah. Australian yeah. rock as well, and then, like, trying to bring in something a bit more modern too, but no, I like those comparisons. It's an album. It's cohesive, okay? All of the tracks that I certainly listen to, so I listen to music, in the car so i couldn't name check things of course i've got itunes up in front of me right now so i can see that there's 12 tracks on there so there's quite a lot you've worked mm-hmm. your asses off obviously to get it up to that point and it's cohesive because the quality of quality of the songs are consistent so whilst i can't name check any of the songs that i felt were a highlight because it all seems to blend into one as you can appreciate when you're listening to it in the car what i am mm-hmm. what I'm very much aware of is when there hasn't been much thought put into an album's narrative. It's a bit like the, the peaks are too high and the valleys are too deep, but not with yours. It's very consistent. So was that something that you had in mind when you were producing an album? Yeah, absolutely. So this song, these songs came together. They were a collection of songs that we had that we sort of decided these can't go on a couple of singles or an EP or two EPs. They kind of have to, they needed to stay together. So it was actually considered when we put it together. Mm, okay. 12 songs, though. That's a lot. So the creative juices were flowing. Are you the primary songwriter in the band, or is it more of a collective? So we've got two main songwriters, Ben and Tyler. So they're, they're the voices that you hear on the record. Okay. Um, and they have been bringing their tracks to our band for the last few years, and that's sort of we've built up this, sort of collection over the last couple of years and had you know a bunch more and just weeded them out to this 12 and thought this is the this is the collection that it is okay gotcha and i'm just reading your biography here on facebook are you from the inner west of sydney is that right 
When the, well, we all are now in the inner west in Sydney. We all grew up on the outer rim of Sydney and have since, as we've grown up, moved into where the scene is. Mm. What's it like down there these days? I used to be in a band called Velveteen in Sydney many, many moons ago, about 15 years ago or so. And it was tough to be quite mm-hmm. frank back then. But I've had a, I, I don't get the opportunity to talk to too many Sydney bands, but ironically, I've got yourself and I've got Slow Culture to talk to after you, a fellow called, from a band called Slow Culture, who's on Firestarter as well, you probably know, after you. And you're both from Sydney, now that I know that you're from Sydney. It's really unusual for me to talk to a band from Sydney, and I've, I must have spoken to at least 50 or 60 Australian artists at the moment. But do you, do you find the scene is healthy at the moment down there? Um, it's, it's healthy in pockets. So there's definitely like, obviously with all the things going on in the city with our nightlife at the moment, it's tough. Um, definitely in the inner city, but we found that the outer suburbs are still kicking and definitely still have a scene. You sort of know, you have to know where to look for it. Like we've played down in Melbourne and we've gotten some really good vibes from there and can see it as like a thriving culture. I think up here it's more of a case of um, knowing where to look for it. Yes, Sydney's very much like that. It's certainly a city, Brisbane here, for example, we've only got north side and south side. There's a few other things like Bayside as well, but Sydney, I, I couldn't even keep up with the amount of pockets where people identify that they come from. There's the Shire, there's the northern districts, there's the inner west, there's the eastern suburbs, there's the leafy north shore, the mean streets of the leafy north shore there. You know, there's the inner city. <laughs> there's all these different spaces and, and, and therefore there's going to be different scenes that effectively cater to people who have it, who, who go to these places, don't, isn't there? So have you found that the desire to potentially leave Sydney, has that has that something that's come out of somebody's lips in the band yet or are you, are, you, are you one of those bands where it's like look we're going to stay here and we're going to do what we need to do here um i don't think so i think we really wanted to take this as far as it'll go so we want to see like we'll take it to anyone who will listen anyone who wants to come up and have a dance we're willing to play to them sydney's convenient because it's local um, we've done a little bit, of, like we did a show in Melbourne, we've sort of been down to Wollongong, up to Newcastle, and sort of as far as we can go, that's convenient. But um, no, definitely, definitely want to, don't, like not particularly staying in Sydney, just that's where we've we've found our stick at the moment. Yep, fair enough. Let's talk about the album again. The other thing that I noticed about it is that it is beautifully recorded. There's a great balance between the instrumentation there. Now, I'm a musician as well. Now, I know you can't, you can paper over some things with a good mix and therefore a good master, but not everything. But you guys, my point here is that you guys have recorded this beautifully. So, did you work, you worked across different studios, I understand. Is that correct? And yep. what was the reason behind working across different studios rather than just trying to get all of the songs recorded in one block, so to speak? It was, um, yeah, no, it was a consideration of like what instruments worked best in what rooms. So we did a lot of the drum parts at A Sharp Studios in um, in Sydney because it's got a great drum room and it's got um, some great outboard gear that our producer um, Nathan Sheehy was interested in. So he sort of took the reins on that and said, "I really like, I love your sound. This is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to get this sound." So it was a consideration on his part of the best place to take us for the instruments and the rooms and the gear. 
Mm, okay. Tell me about Nathan. He's a name that I haven't come across before. So I think he's been kicking around for a while. Um, I know he's been engineering on a few like, relatively big projects. I think he did some stuff for Birds Tokyo and um, a few other bands. He's, okay. We sort of got onto him from a local Sydney band called Creo, who we really liked their sound and were interested in that sort of sound and tracked down Nathan through that. And he just got onto him and he was just a bloke. So we just got along like a house on fire and the whole thing just kind of became a collective project. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it one of those albums that was recorded over uh, a couple of months or a couple of years? You know, the old, uh, you know, your first <laughs> album. I assume this is your first album, so that should be a question. Is it your first album? As it is our first album. Yeah, so was it one of those albums that was, was effectively put together over a couple of years and you just you found time where you could find time to, to do things? No, it was like a solid six months of on and off booking in where we can. So we weren't um, like every day, but over a six-month period, we were recording the album. Okay, radio. The old juggling day jobs with band thing. How does that go for you guys? Because it's always been a bane of every musician's existence really, isn't it? Still is, yeah, absolutely. But um, you do it because you love it, right? So, like, we found the time and we made the time because we were passionate about this thing. So we basically have our jobs to pay for our love of music. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, look, because I'm going to be releasing this as a podcast episode, anybody listening that's not a musician, that's the reason musicians work. Yes, there's rent considerations and... I mean, you know, family is a completely different thing. So if people have got kids like what I've got, well, that's that's another story. But when it comes down to if you don't have kids and you can focus on, on a band, you generally are working to support your creative outlet, aren't you? Absolutely. Like, what else are you going to do? Well, it's a noble pursuit. The world needs yep. music. I, I've often, I often say, and I've said this many times on the podcast series, but if it wasn't for the musicians, the poets, the vagrants, the magicians... If it wasn't for them, the artists as well, of course, the world would cease to turn because we're the ones that are bringing some, we're creating stuff out of literally nothing. When it comes down to military exercises, politicians, it's all stuff that's already there. They're just articulating it and saying, do this because X, Y, or Z. But all of those people that fall under the, the banners that I just mentioned, it's creativity, really, isn't it? That's the stuff that inspires and, and makes people. Well, it gives people a little bit more than just a reason to live, I think. Absolutely, mate. You're preaching to the choir here. We're all about that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. So, um, talking about poets, lyrical themes, the words, are, mm-hmm. they, are they meaningful for the band, do you think? Or, you know, the, the Faith No More thing where Mike Patton used to just put whatever rhymed and just fit within the musical stanza, as I think he's already professed too many times. But for you guys, is, is, there, is there a bit more meaning there? Oh, no, definitely. So it's more of like real-life experiences, I think. Um, they all have come from somewhere, whether or not it's like an experience that we've been through or like a perception. So uh, one side of an experience and things like that. So it sort of covers everything from life that we've been living over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And the let's talk about the art. You mentioned the artists. So the artwork there, mm. 
I know a lot of people oh, that... probably won't pay attention to it because that's just the way people are these days, but it is great artwork, I must say. So tell me about oh, that. Oh, yeah. So we are so lucky. We've got a whole bunch of friends that we've been able to bring into this thing. Um, one of our friends, Crispy Torrington, she drew those portraits for us and then did the loco up and all that sort of stuff. And all of the, um, if you see it, it's like all of the water droplets and stuff like that are actually stuff that she did while making that. Um, we basically gave her some pictures and then she just took it from there and it honestly blew us away when she delivered those things. Yeah, okay. Now, was there a specific, I'm looking at the artwork right now, is there a specific order to things? Like, is it uh, are, you, are you arranged in a, in a way on purpose, or is it just the artist's interpretation of the band? No, so she drew the portraits, and then we arranged them. So when we were okay. putting them, them together, it was more of a consideration of, oh, how weird is that? Like, so and so is looking at so and so. Yes. So like, <laughs> that was that was mostly the consideration, and then Tony down the bottom, the drummer, he just looks so deep in thought he had to be down there he was off in his own little world yes i'm noticing that now so the uh the young lady in the band there is staring intently at looks like the band logo there so which one are you mate? Yep. just to put a face to the note i'm bottom left gotcha there you go so you're looking at the logo as well i am there you go i love that logo look at that <laughs> what about merch have you guys thought about merch have you got merch to offer it at gigs and also online no, we're about to do merch. So we looked at some stuff on merch um, just to see what was available out in the on the internet. And there's some stuff where you can, you know, no cash up front and get some shirts made, and it's like made to order, but that didn't really work out. So I think what we're going to do is get some of our merch made. Um, we've got some vinyl that are coming for this nice. record once they finally get delivered. So we've got some of those for sale. Um, and then just kind of want to get bits and pieces, going to get some patches and guitar picks and all that sort of stuff. Yep. We can start to give away. Hmm. What about you with, with your, because you're the guitarist, right? I take it in the band. I'm the bass player. Bass player, that, well, bass player to bass player, that's what I am as well. So that's, that's interesting, actually. So when you started playing the bass, and because I've already mentioned mm -hmm. the, uh, the Rolling Stones, well, what I feel is a Rolling Stones connection via the sound of the band. Was it guys like Bill Wyman that you were inspired by, or was it the fairly typical 90s, 2000 thing where you were into grunge or new metal or what have you? No, I actually got into funk. Um, my, I had a bass teacher that was a bass player and a saxophone player in a Pink Floyd cover band, and he just opened my mind. Um, he got me into Jackson five and then like even into rock and roll where he got me into Paul McCartney and like going through James Jameson. So that's sort of where I found my like love of bass when I got into it. I found somebody that was just opened my mind to it. Mm, I've got a big block mounted poster of Larry Graham staring at me, uh, oh. just above my desk here. Yeah. It's, um, I, I think. A lot of people don't understand bass playing who aren't bass players, of course. They just think the bass is there to fill out the sound or provide the bottom end. But it's essential. It's an essential component to the groove. And it's not done better than in funk and disco music. Jazz, of course, does it very well as well. But I've, um, I've played in all sorts of bands, and uh, I tend to interview bands that would fall under the banner of heavy metal usually, but in almost every instance, including this conversation I'm having now, when I've spoken to a bass player, 
We've all professed to being fans of funk, disco, Motown. <laughs> it's just the bass player's creed, isn't it? It's just the rhythm. Like, that's what it's all about. Hmm. Yeah, I, well, you listen to a lot of rock music and with the greatest of respect to some pretty good bands out there, there's no groove and there's nothing yeah. for a bass player to wrap their ear around. And, uh, Definitely. yeah, it's, it's very... It, it's, look, I'll ask you a question about the music that you've created here. So was the music brought to you and it was a case of, mate, just go ahead and do what you think is right, or were you given a specific set of instructions on what to do with your bass playing a company what was, to accompany what was written? No, it's like, go for it. So basically, as we've spoken about in the band before, like, they, Ben or Tyler will bring a song and what they love about it is that they can give it to us and they, we do things on it that they wouldn't have even thought about. So there's that freedom there, like, between us to sort of be like, hey, I've got this thing, do what you do on it. Hmm. Yeah, that happens very rarely in my experience. Absolutely. I've been in session environments where it's like, it starts out with do whatever you think you want to do, you do it, and you end up putting far more notes on there. And I know um, James Lomenzo, who was in White Line and Megadeth, talked about the same thing. He goes, when I was playing a lot of notes, I didn't get many phone calls. As soon as I stopped playing a lot of notes and just sticking to the root note, my phone couldn't stop ringing. It was incredible. It's like there's an attitude from, from guitarists and songwriters out there that when they bring the bass player on there, the bass is to be seen and not heard or something. Yeah. I think as long as everybody thinks that like you're working towards serving the song, you don't run into problems. So I think there's always a place to play less, but then sometimes you find your groove and, you know, play a little bit more, indulge a little bit. Well, I think, I think it's trying to strike a balance, yeah. Yeah, and it's also about whether or not your drummer can handle a groove as well. Uh, I've always found that yeah. some, some drummers are used to playing lock stock with a guitarist, and that's usually bad news for us bass players because yep. they're, they're focusing not on the groove but on being busy, which doesn't yep. leave any room for groove. And I've tried to explain that to a lot of drummers over the years, but you know how it is, mate. People tend to want to oh, they man. do whatever it's they so want to do. <laughs> you know, but and Tony, our drummer, Tony, is all about the funk as well. So me and him, we've got a thing going where we try and just work on being like locking in together. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so how, how do, you, do you guys have practice sessions, just you and him, where you get in there and you, you say focus on a riff for a little bit and you start mixing things up? Have you, have you done anything like that in the past? Yeah, we've been, we've been experimenting with that sort of stuff a little bit. I think making this record made us realize how much we need to work together more um, because it was sort of like we were just rehearsing as a band it came to doing this record and we learn a lot from actually the recording process and being like, hey, wait a minute. If him and I start working together more, we can lock in a bit better this rhythm section rather than just being a bass and a drum together, you know? Mm. Mm. And what's your, what's your instrument of choice? What brand do you play? Uh, Fender, actually. So yeah, I got a... P bass, and then for the recording, I was using between a P and a jazz bass. Yeah, it's it, the, the music really lends itself to that big fat P bass sound, and of course the jazz bass. It does. There with it's a bit it's, nice flat wounds on it. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Well. What are you using rotor sound or what? What sort of strings are you using? Um, I was just using the Fender flat wounds on the um, P bass, and then um, I just had the round wounds on the on the jazz bass. 
Cool, cool. And you got a you got a, a Galleon Kruger and Ampeg set up alongside of that. Yeah, so that's what we're using for the recording. We're using the Ampeg, but I just run a um, Fender TV12 combo bass amp. Mm-hmm. Um, just real nice single tube. Just gets a real nice warm tone. Still got a little bit of mid punch to it, and like. The other factor to consider is that it's easy to log around for gigs and stuff like that. It's actually really convenient. I think I know the one. It's got the tube preamp, but it's solid state. It's a solid state amplifier with a tube preamp. Am I correct yep. in saying that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. it, yeah. Fender, in my experience with amps, particularly post about, gosh, 1990 or thereabouts, uh, but they're a bit hit and miss, but that one's a good one that you've got there. Yeah. And it's, it's loud enough to justify... Yeah, and it, but yeah. It's, it's loud enough to justify bringing something with all due respect small along with you. Yep. Um, it's I've I've got a big galleon. Well, when I say I've got a number of cabinets, but my uh, go-to is a galleon Kruger setup. I've got a thousand and one RB, but I've also got the Micro Bass five hundred. Yeah, and that's, no, that's nice. Well, it's all I really need. But because I play a lot of I play Music Man basses, so I'm playing a lot of funk and. Um, dub style bass lines i'm playing covers but i do my own thing you know how it is you've got to do your own thing and be creative um absolutely but i I found that i really needed a heavy duty speaker cabinet so i ended up having to get the um 800 watt galleon kruger um what's it called rbh 800 rbh i think it is i could be wrong i'm probably completely wrong with that but it's an absolute bastard on the back um yeah weighs about 50 kilos 55 kilos or so it's too heavy, to be honest with you, but then I find that if I don't use it, I'd go through speakers. I tend to kill speaker cones far too yeah, quickly. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, interesting. So it's got too much power coming out of the head. Yeah, well, it's... And also, too, playing a lot of slap stuff. Um, yeah, just trying, uh, yeah. trying to cut through. Oftentimes, I don't play through a PA. It's just me. Um, yep. We find that gives us the best balance in the bands that I play in because uh, when you put that... When you put the bass amp through a PA... Um, you've generally got to turn it down, right down, and let the PA yeah. do all the work. But that means that my on-stage volume isn't that loud. And I don't like using mm. monitors. So people say, oh, just use monitors. Yep. But it's like I prefer it to come from behind me, not in front. Yeah. So you, you understand these things. That. You're a bassist. So you, yeah, uh, a lot absolutely. of people don't understand that there's actually a dynamic that is at play when you're on stage. Um, yeah. So you run Music Man Studio? Yeah, yeah, I've got four of them, and I've got a, uh, I've got two Sterlings and two Stingrays, and both two fives and two fours, so I'm pretty covered, and I've been using that setup for at least ten years now, so about twenty years actually. Um, I've always had my eye on those. They're, Curious about them. It depends. I find that they're very reliable, like that they will consistently produce the same tone and same sound. Um, They've got their they've got their issues like they've got a few I wouldn't say music man bases generally have a fatal flaw and you just want it to appear sooner rather than later, so all of the battery cases on mine they snapped or something happened to the battery cases which is a known issue with music man. The other thing was a truss rod in my Sterling one the one that I've had for about twenty two years or so that snapped, um, and that snapped before a gig which wasn't helpful. Um, but what, <laughs> what I think I think if you get a good luthier. And you sort out whatever issues they've got. They are bases that you'll have for life. It, it goes without saying that that's how it is. I know that people have had issues with P bases and jazz bases. It really, honestly, mm. depends on who's bloody made the thing too, whether or not they're in a good mood or not. So yeah, each one can be different. Yeah, I've played some piece of shit Squire bases that have 
played like a dream. And then someone's handed me a bass from the 70s and said, mate, this is the real deal. Play this like a P bass. It's got the cigarette burns on it to prove its age and all the rest of it. And they're like, man, you will never play another bass like this. And I'm like, this is garbage. This is Yeah, that's, that's what I'm running now. So I am just got a um, Squire Jaguar bass and I pulled out the pickups in it, put some new um, Seymour Duncan pickups in it. And it's great. It's the best. I'm just swapping between the P bass and that one live now. Yeah, it's it's really, it's it's random. And as the great um, Gary Albrecht up here, who used to be the uh, fellow who checked all of Takamini's guitars when they came into Australia, I think I understand that's what he used to do anyway. Um, he explained to me there's a process that you will never get. Well, maybe not never, but it's very hard to get a decent guitar off off a retail shelf because. Mm. When, because there's there's two or three sets of hands that a bass or a guitar goes through before it hits the floor, and it usually the good ones are usually taken by that time. So I'm talking about the the really the magnificent ones that are just set and will just age beautifully. But I, look, I think beyond that, as I say, you just want the issues to come to light sooner rather than later through constant playing, and then and then you fix them, and then I think you've got a decent bass or a guitar after that. But you know yep. you got you got to wear down the frets. <laughs> For your yeah. playing style and the neck has to be I like a very low action and a lot of basses don't like a low action because of the buzzing. Um nah, with you on that too. Yeah, well I just find if you're busy and you like being dexterous and doing different things, and I I never use a pick, you see. And I'm not judgmental yeah. either on that, but I just I'm much far more dexterous with my fingers. Um yeah, I, I just prefer having a low action because I don't want to press down too hard all the time because you wear out after if I'm playing five hours over a five-hour period each night, you get yeah, more out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 Mm. Less energy to pick up a beer later. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it's been a wonderful chat. I better let you go. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series and syndicating for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that conversation featured Sam Matthews, the bassist and Sydney-based The No Goods. Thank you so much for listening.